few ushers. I think Ethan was practicing while mom and dad were away on that couple's retreat because he did a real good job. Praise the Lord for that. So our scripture reading for tonight is from Hebrews chapter 1. We looked at the first three verses there, and we will come back to that later in the service. We find in those verses reference or allusion to the Lord Jesus Christ in the three offices, the three anointed offices that he perfected, uh, fulfilled uh, to their perfection, the office of prophet, priest, and king. And so as we continue our Sunday evening, systematic theology always sounds so heavy, but really what we believe is to dictate how we behave in the Christian life. So it is important to be specific and to look into the Word and have all of our beliefs firmly rooted in the Word of God. And so we're going to have a little introductory uh, part of our lecture or our message now, and then we will come back to some things. But let's start with this concept of anointing or of the anointed one. It is extremely significant in the scriptures. And so those three offices that we just mentioned were anointed offices, kings, priests, prophets would have been anointed. They would have been smeared with oil, exactly what it means. They would have been consecrated for some high purpose that they're called to. It would symbolize a heavenly blessing for a heavenly task that they would be uh, conducting here on the earth. And so that's what we want to unpackage this evening. So we will come back to those verses, but let's just talk about the concept of anointing itself. It matters very much how we see Christ, our view of Christ, and we'll return to that later as well. But to see him as the anointed one is so very significant for us. Now, anointing was very common in Jewish, ancient Jewish culture and the other Oriental or Eastern cultures of the day, all the way through the Old Testament era and all the way into the New Testament era. And so before we even talk about the significance of anointing in those three offices, what other things would be anointed. So I put up some verses there just for us to look at. Sometimes inanimate objects were anointed. They were marked as something sacred, maybe indicating the place or the purpose. You may remember, and back in Genesis thirty-one thirteen, God reminded Jacob of the time that he anointed that pillar at Bethel, where he met God and God dealt with him. So you see that verse up there. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. If you were to look in Exodus chapter 30, actually you could look more fully at that passage sometime on your own. And it's uh, such a great passage about the making of that anointing oil or that ointment. It was to be made after the way of the apothecary. It was not to be imitated by anyone else. When one was anointed with it, specifically in the priesthood in that passage, they were to be anointed, and the oil could not touch the skin. You could even see that in that beautiful Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is as the oil 
that ran down upon the beard, even to the skirts of Aaron. And so there are all these descriptions, but as you look at it, you see many inanimate, inanimate objects, things there in the temple that were be to anointed, and thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment of a compound after the art of the apothecary. It shall be holy anointing oil, and thou shalt anoint the tabernacle, the ark of the testimony, the table and the vessels and the candlestick, the altar of incense, etc. So sometimes inanimate objects would be anointed because they were to be set apart as sacred or consecrated. Anointing was a commonplace in other things, so we put up a a few more verses as we look at them. In Ruth chapter 3, verse 3, Naomi tells Ruth to wash herself and to anoint herself because she's going to go to that threshing floor to see Boaz there. You also find that in Esther. Esther and the others were to anoint themselves with ointment over a period of time before they would go in before the king. Guests were commonly anointed. It was a a symbol of a gesture of hospitality. And in Eastern cultures, hospitality is absolutely essential. And when you understand that and you're reading the scriptures, many things pop out to you as understanding when it said that Jesus constrained, they constrained Jesus to come stay with them. They asked him to, uh, to come and he first refused, but they constrained him. You see the hospitality all throughout the scriptures. And one of the gestures was anointing. And perhaps you would remember in Luke chapter 10, uh, excuse me, in Luke chapter 7, verse 46, Jesus had something to say to Simon because Simon did not offer the gesture of anointing him as a guest in the home, but that woman with the alabaster box about whom they were complaining did do that. little trivia we'll throw out there. Who was the anointed cherub? And where do you find him? Anybody can answer that. We're not going to do microphone or anything. Who remembers the anointed cherub? Say it real loud. It was Lucifer himself or Satan, and you find that in the book of Ezekiel, and you hear him referred. So in the, that passage, of course, is talking about the king of Tyrus or Tyre but it refers there to Lucifer himself. So you see anointing all over, but for the office, the office of the prophet, he would be anointed. The office of the priest would be anointed, and the office of the king would be an anointed office. In the Old Testament, the term for anointing is Mashiach. Mashiach, I suppose that's how you pronounce it. I don't think I could write it in its original language, and I'm sure I cannot pronounce it properly. But it meant anointed or anointed one. And in the Old Testament, you will only find it translated as Messiah twice. Every other place, the 37 other times that word in the Hebrew shows up, it's just anointed or the anointed one. But when we speak of Messiah, that term referred to the anointed one. Now, in the ESV, you won't find it at all in the Old Testament, because even in this Daniel, and that's why I kind of put reference to both of them, even in Daniel, they just translate Mashiach as anointed one. Same word. It's the same word that you see there. And we couldn't even begin to unpackage 
uh, to try to unpackage that great prophecy of Daniel and that key that opens up so much of Revelation, but just to see those verses where they refer to Messiah, to the coming of an anointed one, of an anointed one who shall be cut off. You also find the term Messiah itself twice in the New Testament, but the much more common word for anointed one in Greek would be Christos. Christos would be Christ, the Christ. So whenever we refer to him as the Messiah or we refer to him as the Christ, I heard one person say that isn't his last name. When we say Jesus Christ, we're referring to Jesus, the anointed one. When we say Messiah, in the King James, it's Messias, because they transliterate it directly from the Greek. The Greek transliterated it directly from the Hebrew word. You know what transliteration is? It's not when they translate a word from one language to another, but they take a word in one language and they conform it to the phonemes and alphabet of another. So when they said Messiah, they were taking that right from the Greek that had taken it from there. I lived in Samoa for a long time and we transliterate a lot of words. So you can eat your supoketi, but you not only need a fork, you need a sipuni with your fork, right? Armando, if you're going to eat spaghetti the Italian way, you need a fork and a spoon and you twirl it. Don't ever cut up the spaghetti. I'm being silly for a minute, but that principle of transliteration, of just taking a word and conforming it to another language. So when we speak of Jesus as the Christ, we're speaking of him as the anointed one, the one who was set apart, who was consecrated, who was made sacred, but to all three of those offices. Because there were times when the kings failed. There were times when the prophets failed. There were times when the priest, even the high priest, failed. But there would be a perfect one who is coming. So I think we need to dig a little bit more into who was the prophet, who was the priest, who was the king, what was their unction, and what was their function. And I think the best way for us to do that tonight would be simply to invite them to come and explain for themselves. Is it not recorded in 1 Kings 19.16 how God instructed my mentor Elijah to anoint me and Elijah the son of Shaphat and Abimelech shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. The office of Elijah that Elijah filled before me and many others after me is a high and holy calling. It is one which God fills only when his normal channels of communication through the priests and kings fails. When God raises up one of us, our voice takes precedence over both priest and king. We are drawn from all ranks. We know no allegiance to anyone but God. We speak with divine authority. Occasionally our words are reinforced by miracles, as is the case with Elijah and doubly mine. We are sometimes inspired by God to lift the opaque and impenetrable veil of the future, revealing uh, things that will surely come to pass. We are always inspired by God to call out moral depravity, 
social injustice, and spiritual apostasy. We denounce sin, demand repentance, and we declare the purposes of God for mankind. But ask any one of us, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, Obadiah, all the way up to Malachi and John the Baptist, and we will declare we are not the one that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19, when he said, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them all that I command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. While we all spoke the truth and showed the way, it is that prophet, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, who is the truth, the way, and the life. Give him praise and glory tonight. I am the high priest Hilkiah. Is it not written in 2 Kings 22, verse 8 and 10, how I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord in the days of King Josiah? And Hilkiah the high priest said unto Saphon the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Saphon, and he read it. And Saphon the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Saphon read it before the king. Oh, the glorious reforms that follow when King Josiah heard the word and heeded its commandments. All of us Levitical priests were to be anointed into our high and holy office with the precious ointment prescribed and described in the detail in Exodus 30. Our unction and our functions are vital. Without our mediation, the people would not have atonement with, access to, or acceptance by our thrice holy God. We offer sacrifices to appease the wrath of our holy God. We offer the prayers and praises on behalf of the people. Only the high priests among us can enter the Holy of Holies to cover the sins of the people for the year. As important as our sacrifices and intercessions are, they only merit limited access and temporary forgiveness. But there is one who is not just the high priest, but the high priest. We learn much about him in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 4, verse 14 tells us that our great high priest that is passed into the heavens is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Christ, offered the perfect and permanent sacrifice in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 22 through 26, we are told that our great high priest did not offer the blood of animals for temporary remission of sins, but that he permanently put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a superior sacrifice. Jesus indeed is so much better than any other high priest before him. His intercessions too are so much better for Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 tells us that he has unchangeable priesthood and ever liveth to make intercession for us. 
Let us ever exalt the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, our final and forever High Priest. I am King David. I was anointed three times to this high and holy office. It's my first anointing, not recorded in 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1, 12, and 13. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided me a king among his sons. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. The office of king that Saul filled before me and many others after me is a sacred calling. As kings, we are first and foremost called to serve the supreme king of Israel, God himself, and none other beside him. And we are called to mirror his divine reign here on earth. We are obligated to observe God's commandments and laws without fail and to walk in integrity all of our days. We are to rule with justice and to advocate for the helpless, to defend the nation of Israel and to protect her God-given borders, or even to engage in war when necessary. Tragically, most who held my office failed to reign righteously. Most did evil continually in the sight of the Lord, bringing judgment upon themselves and others. Even I, though I was a man after God's own heart and came to be known as Israel's greatest king, even I failed him, as it is recorded in 1 Kings 15, verse 5, where it says, David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. But there is one who is coming again. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He will reign righteously for a thousand years on this earth and then forever through all eternity. His reign will have no end. Even now, many have turned from their sin, found salvation in him, and are allowing him to rule and reign in their hearts. They walk by faith, not by sight, and await his return. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Didn't they do a great job? I tell you what, you got more of the preaching tonight from the three of them describing their positions than probably you'll get for the rest of the night. Let's give them a hand. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate that. God bless you. And so we can see as we look at it, and if you would go turn back in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, where we'll focus and go from there, you can see how the three offices, the three anointed offices, all represented some part of what Christ would come to do in perfection. Indeed, as Paul writes to the Colossians, we are complete in him, our anointed one. In Hebrews chapter 1, as we look at those verses again, you will see 
reference or allusion to Christ in all three of those capacities. When we speak of an office, we speak of an official capacity that someone is fulfilling. And in this case, they were anointed uh, offices that they came into. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And so we see there were prophets all throughout the ages, uh, some in the anointed office of the prophet, even others like Moses himself who prophesied. He prophesied that there would be a prophet who came among their brethren, among those people, the prophet. And we can know that those prophets prophesied in different ways. They spoke forth truth. They foretold future events that only God can reveal to them to reveal to the people. (coughs) They may have received revelation through dreams and through other ways that they would speak it. And God revealed. You see, the prophet reveals The priest reconciles, and the king reigns, and Christ does them all. And so when we come to verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Christ is the great revealer, not merely a prophet revealing things God gave to him, but the one the truth himself. As you go in through this passage, you find that not only is Christ in the office of great prophet revealed, but in that verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things. There we see reference to the kingship, to Christ being in the line of David, of being the king who will be revealed eventually as the king of kings. You see also in verse 3, excuse me, uh, in verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of power after making purification for sins, or when it, it says in the King James, when he had by himself purged our sins. And so there we see Christ as our high priest. He was the priest who offered the sacrifice, and he himself was the sacrifice. So let's consider each of those three offices for a few moments tonight. (coughs) Excuse me. You heard from Elijah how Moses spoke prophetically back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18 and 19. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee. And if you were to look at that passage and read those verses, and you might say, how can I be sure that that was referring to Christ himself? It's affirmed for us in the book of Acts, in chapter 3, in verses 20 to 23, when Peter was giving his second message. And you find in those verses, it tells that that was indeed referring to Christ himself. And so Christ fulfilled perfectly the office of prophet. The prophet came when priests and kings failed. In the day that Christ came, could we not say that the kings and priests were utterly failing to communicate God's message to God's people? 
<coughs> we heard from Alan as he uh, fulfilled the role of the prophet there, how the prophet had no allegiance to none but to God himself. Is that not Christ? The one who, when he came, he had allegiance to none but to, to God himself. He revealed future events like many of the prophets did. He revealed his upcoming death, burial, and resurrection, the betrayal, uh, the denial by uh, Peter, the betrayal by Judas, and so many other things, destruction of the temple. And he has prophesied for us his coming again, his return. He is the great prophet. His prophecies were also marked by miracles. Didn't we just hear of that this morning as we looked in the Gospel of Mark? All these different ways that we see Christ fulfilling completely, entirely the office of prophet. He denounced sin. He demanded repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He not only revealed the way, the truth, and life, he was those very things. In Hebrews chapter 1, as you look at it, the phrase that unlocks, it's like a key to the whole book. If you were to go from verses 3 and continue on, you will find in verse 4 this phrase, much superior, as much superior, or in the King James, so much better. You see, Christ was all those three, but he was so much better than all those three because he fulfilled them perfectly. He was superior in every way as the prophet, for he was different. He was distinct. All the others prophesied of him. He was the source of the prophecy. And that's why on that Emmaus road, he can say to the two of them how he could expound the scriptures and show how they all revealed him. So in a very different way, they all received the word of God. They all had to say, thus saith the Lord, but Christ could simply say, verily I say unto you, but I say to you, he could speak entirely as the revelation of God, for he was God himself. In the broadest sense of prophet, meaning one who reveals God to us and speaks the words of God, Christ is all that. He is entirely and fully and completely a prophet, but so much more. We heard also from a priest, specifically in our case from a high priest. We saw that after making purification for sins, he was prophet, he was also priest. He was the one who went in before us. See him now as the perfect priest. And in Hebrews, we do not have the time tonight by any stretch of the imagination, but all the way from chapter 4 through chapter 10, this thought will be expanded upon and given in detail. It starts in Hebrews of Jesus was superior to the angels. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit down, God, and your throne is forever? He was superior to the angels, but then the writer of Hebrews will spend a lot of time on this. If you want to know about the priesthood of Christ as perfect priest, you'd have to study through that. You heard a couple of those verses already as Dennis spoke, but let me refer back to a few of them. 
before we do. Christ as the perfect priest, he offered sacrifices to approach God. Oh, how we need our high priest. He applied the blood to appease God. He offered prayers to appeal to God. Praise God, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. And he offered praises to applaud God. Hebrews presents the superior office of our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 and 14 and 15, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. We have no doubt. We're not painting an imaginary picture or just speaking of a type. We're speaking of something that's absolutely clearly revealed under inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the Hebrews writer gives it to us. In verse 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Oh, when Christ died on the cross and said, it is finished, and the veil was torn from top to bottom, and the priesthood entered, how dare anyone else try to come and stand between God and man again when our high priest granted access to all of us? Some of you who are here and heard a little bit of my sharing last week at the small group the large small group gathering might have heard a little more about that. In Hebrews chapter 6, in those last verses, and then rolling over into chapter 7, we learn more about this priesthood, that it was so far superior because it was permanent. It says in verse 20, the forerunner is entered, even Jesus made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, coming into verse 1 of chapter 7, for Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all first being by interpretation the king of righteousness, and after that the king of Salem which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. You see, Christ as our priest, as our high priest, is superior even to the line of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. Even that could not contain, even that could not embody all that Christ is. And so they had to appeal back to that mysterious priest way back in the book of Genesis of Melchizedek, who just enters the scriptures and leaves the scriptures just like that, having no marked beginning and no marked ending. And so when Christ's priesthood is described. It cannot even be limited by the limitations of the Levitical priesthood. It has to point to something else. He is our high priest. And because of him, we have access. Because of him, we can appeal to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest. It matters so much how we view him. We can go on and on. Hebrews chapter 9, there are different verses I have in 12, 24, and 26. Just a few phrases from those verses for the sake of time. If you want to write them down and look, really just study Hebrews chapter 4 to 10 and dig in if you want to see more and more and understand. See, I don't think we think too often of Christ as our prophet, nor do we think very often of him as our high priest. 
He's our Savior. He's the Lord. He's the one who died for our sins. But the more you dig into it, the more you fall in love with him, the more you understand how much he has done for us, how much he is currently doing for us, and how much he will yet do for us. And so let's go even a little further. In Hebrews chapter 9, Verse 11, become a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. And a little later in the chapter, in verse 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into holy place every year with the blood of others, for then he must have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Year after year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, and then the blood taken and applied to the mercy seat for propitiation to appease God, had to be done year after year in such a limited way. But when Christ did it, he did it once and for all. He is our final and forever high priest who made that sacrifice for us. Praise God for it. Because of his sacrifice and approaching God on our behalf, we could come boldly to the throne of grace. Because God was appeased, By his blood, once and forever, it can be applied to our account and we can receive Christ as our Savior and have our sin washed away. Because he opened the way, we could directly appeal to God in the name of our Savior, our High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The third of the offices, and I'll try to be brief with this one, Christ the perfect King. Do we not cry out for perfect leadership? Do we not desperately need a king to rule us with justice, a king to advocate for the helpless, a king who is righteous in all his ways? Oh, the earth just never seems to be able to produce one who even comes close. Look at the world situation Even now, we need a king, but our king is coming. Oh, for we who are believers, we can make him king of our heart, ruler of our lives, and how we choose to live in this world. But we cry out for that king. Let him come and rule with a rod of iron. Let him show perfect rule to an imperfect people who absolutely need it. So you see in Hebrews, in those three little verses we find that Christ, after he made sacrifice for our sins, he sat down. The priest could not sit down. The priest must continue to work and continue to work. And each year and each season and each feast and each event, another sacrifice and another, oh, but Christ, when he was done once and forever, he sat down, the king of glory. Behold our God. That's our God. That's our Christ. He is the anointed prophet, revealer of truth. He is the anointed priest, and he is the anointed king. And praise God, he is coming 
again. You see, Jesus was born to be the king of the Jews, it said there in Matthew chapter 2. The king was to be Jehovah's agent to rule on the earth, to serve as the judge, and to rule with justice. Oh, when Jesus first came, they desperately wanted him to come and be their king. Do you know there's only two times where Jesus said that it's recorded, get thee behind me, Satan. You remember the two times, don't you? Once he said it to Satan himself, who said, you can have rulership of all these kingdoms if you will just bow down before me. And he said to Satan, get thee behind me, Satan. The other time was when he said it to Peter. Peter, just seconds earlier, said, thou art the Christ. And he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But seconds later, a few breaths later, Peter wanted to hinder Christ from going to the cross. No, you will not suffer. You will not go to the cross. You will be our king. And again, Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are an offense. Because when Christ came the first time, it would not be to be the earthly king that we so much cry out for, yet he will come and even do that. There will be a thousand years when he rules and reigns perfectly on this earth when it's made new. And you know what? At the end of that thousand years, there will still even be people who choose to follow the devil when he's loosed again. Because having a perfect king, a perfect ruler, and a perfect environment is not enough. That's a whole other sermon and a whole other topic. But think about our perfect king. He rejected that kingdom, but he spoke of the one that he truly had. John eighteen thirty six. Jesus answered to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, and I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. And you could read throughout the scriptures and see Jesus constantly making reference to the kingdom of heaven and speaking of people repenting and preparing. And you could learn more and more about that kingdom that's very different from any earthly king and kingdom. He's our king. Believer in Christ, hold tight to that. He is our king. Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All power, exousia, it means authority or jurisdiction. It's not like dunamis. It's not all power, dynamite power. He says, All authority, all jurisdiction is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And he will come again, and he will rule with that perfect authority. We know in Revelation chapter 19 that he is revealed as the forever king of kings, the Lord of lords. Praise God for that. Imagine that woman who went to anoint Jesus that day, and when she did, she poured out from that alabaster box. Imagine that she not only engaged in extravagant worship, but she had extraordinary insight, for she saw that he was the anointed one, and she anointed his head. Imagine, as you listen to this song for just a minute, and then I'll come up to conclude and wrap it up. Imagine it was she singing that to Christ. 
For our last few minutes, we want to look at some of the, so what does this mean to me? How is this applicable? I have rich doctrine now, a rich understanding of when we refer to him as Christ, when we refer to him as Messiah, we're referring to him as the anointed one, and we know that he fulfills these three offices perfectly. So what? You see, it's so important that we have a, a right view of Christ because so much comes out of that. I often recommend to people, don't get your image of Christ from seeing him in his sandals and his robe walking by the Sea of Galilee, maybe portrayed and chosen or something like that. Please don't get your image of Christ from Kevin Carver with his wig. I'm being silly for a minute. But look in some of the places in the scriptures, like Revelation chapter 1, and we won't take the time to turn there, but to feed yourself. See him in his transfigured state, or attempt to see him that way. See him risen. See him in his glory. See him in his power, in his majesty. See him with eyes like his fire, trying men's works of what sort they are. See him with the sword coming out of his mouth. See him in that way as well. Try to see, you, you see, we think more in images, pictures, and impressions than we do in philosophies or in thought. We must feed ourselves and have the right words and the right philosophy and right understanding, but in our moment-to-moment life, we think pretty much in images and impressions. And so, therefore, it is essential that we see Christ as he is. I need to see him as the prophet, as the perfect prophet, as the perfect revealer of truth. And I would like to say to you tonight that we need absolute truth, and only Christ can give it. He is the Word of God. Only the Word of God can give it. In one sense, I want to tell you, this moment, like no other moment in the history of mankind, demands it. I need a prophet. I need a revealer of God himself and a revealer of absolute truth. How can I deal with all the narratives and all the news and all the images and transgender and non-binary and all these kind of things? How can I ever answer them without a perfect prophet who has revealed absolute truth? Amen? I need to see him as my prophet. But I'm not going to tell you tonight that this time is so much worse than any other time. The truth of the matter is, truth has been under attack from the very garden. From the very yea, hath God said, to this day, truth is always under attack. But I have a prophet See, if a prophet ever spoke a word of prophecy and it didn't come to pass, he was to be disregarded and even cut off. But I have the one who is the prophet. And so I will, every idea, philosophy, thought, maxim, whatever it is that's presented to me, I will constantly refer back to the revealer of God's will and to the revealer of God's word, to my prophet the Lord Jesus Christ. When I see him as my priest, when I know that he is my priest, I know he's the one who gives me assurance. He's the one who gives me access. 
And he is the one who advocates for me or gives me advocacy. And I have a whole bunch of verses there. We've looked at several of them already. But in Hebrews chapter 4 where it says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Because Christ is my high priest, I could go boldly into the very presence of God. Praise God for it. I need him as my high priest. And I need to avail myself of that access Boy, this morning's message, I told the group before we even started, that was convicting. It wasn't a guilt trip, but it was convicting of how many things we allow to crowd out our time when we access that throne of grace. We must avail ourselves because our Christ went in and opened the way for us to have that access. I can have great assurance because I can go in to that place. I can go in boldly. I know that when I think of Christ acting on my behalf as our high priest, it says, he liveth, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them in Hebrews chapter 7, speaking, but this man, because he continueth ever, has an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession. The Apostle, uh, the Apostle Paul would speak of that in Romans chapter 8. After speaking of the Holy Spirit making intercession for us, Christ also making intercession for us. See, if I see him as the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice who satisfied God and opened the way. Let me go there often with great assurance and knowing that even when I can't, he can. And when I see him finally, and I close with this thought, when I see him as king of kings and lord of lords forever, the one who reigns forever, that's great. And that's grand, and that's big, and we ought to praise him and worship him. We're going to be doing it throughout all of eternity. We ought to praise him and worship him as the king of kings who will reign forever. But he's the Lord of our lives who must reign now. This cheap grace, this cheap salvation, this say a quick little prayer, get your sins forgiven, and go on with life as if it's normal, not giving him any claim, not yielding and being totally committed to him to have that kind of thing. I don't think that's of God. I think that is a rejection and a denial of the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king who Christ is. And so we need him now to rule, right here and right now. So many have been intoxicated by their rulership, by their power, by their position. Many a church has been ruined because a deacon board, I'm not saying this about any of the deacons here, you guys are great, this is not an indirect attack. I'm speaking of having served in many places Many a place is ruined because somebody gets their power and they want to hold on to it and Christ doesn't rule. Many a home has been ruined because Jesus isn't the king of kings in that home. A marriage could be broken. A workplace could be filled with ugly politics all around us. But God's people say he's the king of kings who rules forever and he's my king. And he reigns 
now in my life and what great things that is. As the king, he's worthy of great worship. I don't have time to unpackage this last one tonight, but I'll just point you to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 9. Because, friends, we belong to a royal priesthood. If we can take this and say, not only does this affect how I view Christ, but it affects how I view, how I view my unction and my function. We are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Praise God for that. We have, in a sense, a prophetic function, for we are proclaimers of truth in a world that is lost and dying and deceived in every way. We have a priestly function in the sense, in a very limited sense, just like our prophetic function is limited because we can intercede for others, and we could offer the sacrifices of praise continually. And God will give us opportunities of influence and leadership because our Jesus, the great prophet, priest, and king, says, you will rule and reign with me. And so as he works through us, all three of those can be evident in our lives, but not if we have a shallow view of Christ and a shallow view of what he did, what he does, and what he will do. Let's pray to close, and then you'll be dismissed. Do remember that we have a meeting following this service. Thank you, Father, for the time in your word to explore this particular aspect of Christology, Christ, the Anointed One. And now, Father, as we come to the close of this service, may your blessing be upon us all. I pray in the name of your Son, our Savior, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Lord Jesus Christ, amen.